So I was, um, I, was wor- I was looking at those words, and I was like, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. And I'm like, how many people feel like God's goodness is running after them? Do you ever feel like that? Or do you sometimes feel like, man, I'm overcome, I'm overwhelmed, and God's goodness isn't running after me, something else is running after me. You guys ever feel that way? I, um, you know, you guys know my story. Me and Chris, we got married three years ago in May. And we both went through divorces that we did not want to go through. And it was extremely painful. And, um, you know, sometimes things happen. You don't understand why they happen. You don't know why is, this, why is this tragedy happening to me. What did I do to deserve it? And all you, can, all you can do is say, God, don't let go of me. Like, don't let go of me. And recently, you know, my ex-husband has had a little bit of a revelation I'll say that. He's come back to, into his kids' lives. He's more involved. He's, he's shown some remorse over being away for 10 years. And I looked at that, and I'm like, you know what? God's goodness has always been running after me. I just didn't always see it. I didn't see it. You know, sometimes we, in this world, we will have tribulation. But you know what? His goodness is always running after us, even when we don't see it. And he's hanging on to us even when we don't see it. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm standing right now to say God's goodness is running after us even when we're going through the bad times and we don't see it. He has never left us. He will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. We sometimes don't see where he's at. But I just looked at that, and I'm like, you know what? Your goodness is running after me, God. I'm going to see your goodness in the land of the living, and I can't wait to talk about it to you guys. So I just give you a little preview for that. I'm really excited to see what God's going to do in this whole situation. I told Chris today we were kind of talking about this. Emma's with her dad right now on a road trip up to Michigan, and it's real weird. He hasn't been around. We've seen him more in the last month than we've seen him in 10 years. Is that right? He's just not been present, and all of a sudden he's present, and we're like, what? How do we handle this? What do we do? What do I do with my feelings? I don't know. And I just said, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you're somehow going to work out my emotional needs in this, and I can trust you with all my needs for justice and repentance and remorse in the 10 years that have not been pleasant. I'm going to trust you with my emotional angst, if you will. And that's not an easy thing to do because part of me wants some stuff. I do. And it's not been easy for Chris. I mean, he's seeing this man come back in and it's not it's not a thrill but it's also good for my kids and I need to trust God in this process and it's not easy because and you know tonight we're going to talk about the relationship principles of Jesus and the reality is the only way to do relationships is to do the way that Jesus has taught us to do relationships no other way works frankly no other way works there's too much pain there's too much striving in relationships unless we do it the way that God has called us to do it. And he's the only person who can restore relationships. The principles of Jesus are the only way that relationships can be restored. Our scripture, we're gonna, Chris and I are going to team teach. If you don't mind, I'm going to start out, and then I'm going to bring him up, and we're going to kind of do a, like a little question and answer between us, if that's okay. I really like when Chris shares because he's got great stories and he's such a good communicator. And so we're going to just try this out and do our best and and you are a good communicator, and you need to say, yes, I am, and receive that. Dear Lord. Yes. Here's our scripture. And you guys are going to, um, it's going to be familiar to you. 
Jesus answered him, the most important of all the commandments is this, the Lord Yahweh our God is one. You are to, to love the Lord Yahweh your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being, with every thought that is within you, and with all your strength. This is the great and supreme commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. You never find a greater commandment than these. And that's in the Passion Translation. That's why it's so cool. Matthew 12, 29 through 31. You know, I was talking to Brian Finnemore last week. He did a great job. Did you guys like his sermon last week? It was really good. And we were talking afterwards as we were eating, and we were talking about just different things. And one of, one of the things we kind of um, talked about was the definition of success for churches. Because he was talking about the church as a whole. And we were talking about what's the definition of success. And he said, Paula, he said, so many churches define their definition of success by either their building or how many people they have attending or whatever. He goes, the definition of success, what, what we want to learn and to teach and to grow in is wholeness. How do we live as whole people, whole in our relationships, whole in our bodies, whole with um, our finances? Shalom, peace means wholeness in every area of your, of your um life. And I, I really, that really ministered to me because I was like, you know, <laughs> there's so many people that go to church and they are not whole. They do not live whole lives. They're, they're going through church, they're going through the motions, but nothing they do in their life changes or, or moves the atmosphere in which they're in. They're victims to their life. They're victims to the world around them. They're completely powerless. They are not living whole lives, but they're going to church they're putting a, a checkbox, a check in the box. But, guys, that's not good enough. We're called to live whole lives. And for me, my whole DNA is relationships. How do we live whole in our relationships? You know, like I said, Chris and I have been divorced, not from each other, but from our first spouses. And um, we have committed with each other that we're doing this second relationship in a different way. Like, Jesus is going to be the number one thing in our lives. That's going to be the the person who's going to dictate the way we relate to each other and that's completely different than possibly our first um, relationships and that's one reason we do our marriage classes because we're committed to our own health and wholeness in our marriage and we want other people to participate in that and so I want to talk tonight about some principles relationship principles of Jesus you know nothing the Bible basically is a book about relationships it's a book about God's relationship with us and our relationship with each other. That's all it is. You can boil it down to those two things. And you see that in the scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That encompasses all of the law. That's what the Bible is, is trying to help us with is how do we love God? How do we love each other? That's the highest value of God's heart. The highest value he has is love. It's the highest value. And if we're going to be successful in this world, we have to adopt that value. Like, I have some values. I want to make money. I do. I want to make money. I want to support my home and invest. And, you know, we went up to um, Keystone. We were there for two nights. We liked it so much, we said, can we stay another night? <laughs> and they let us stay another night. And all we could think of is, man, how do we get a place up here? Like, what can we do to get a place up here? Because this is killer. 
up here and we're like how can we how can we get something and we'll vrbo it and then we'll break even should we do it in keystone should we do it over in frisco would it be better in breckenridge where would be the best place and we were just like on the internet looking at property because you know what that the mountains is a cool place to be and being up in the mountains away from stress that's a value that we have and we totally were into it mountains heal everything yeah that's pretty much true isn't it and, uh, and then Chris has a value of fishing, right? And I have a value of letting Chris fish while we're on vacation. <laughs> we um, got a, a condo that looked over the Snake River. It was actually on the Snake River. And you could look in our window and see the fish swimming by. It was like a little beaver pond. And we'd go out in the morning, we'd feed them the um, little that fish food or stuff, and they would just churn and eat all of it. It was fantastic couldn't fish the pond. They wouldn't let him fish the pond. He was bummed out. He had to go into the river. But that's one of your values, right? What are some other values we have as people? Our children, relationship with our children. What else? Food, eating well, healthy living, exercise, political values. Does anyone here have political values? Anyone here political? Anyone here political? Have any political values? We all have values that drive our life. The value, the highest value God has is the relationship between him and us and us and each other. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about we can have values, but our highest value has to line up with God's highest value. If we want to be successful, if we define success as wholeness, that's the way you achieve success. You line yourself up with God to do the relationship with him and with each other the way that he has laid it out. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. I love that. 1 Peter 4.8, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. You know, when we first become a Christian, we, or if you're born in the church, I mean, I, people are like, when did you become a Christian, Paul? I'm like, I don't know. I was born in the church. I, I was born in a relationship with the Lord, but I still chose him for myself as I grew up. But we call that a personal renewal. When you come to know Jesus, you have a personal renewal. He renews you. He raises you up from the dead. You're dead inside. He raises you to relationship with God. That's called a personal renewal. We all have to walk in what's called a relational renewal. Every single one of us. Who here was raised by perfect parents? Raise your hand. Joy had perfect parents. Oh, Sterling had a perfect mother. Good for you, Sterling. Good, that was good. None of us here, I don't think any of us here were raised by perfect parents. And you know what that means? We don't know how to do relationships right. We've modeled things from our parents that have damaged us and damaged the people around us because that's all we knew. God wants to replace what we've learned, those tapes in our mind, with his way of doing relationships. And that takes, we have to do what we always call partner with the Holy Spirit. We have to partner with the Holy Spirit in order to have relationship renewal in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to learn to do.
um, Chris, tell them about tell them about the story about when we went to um, Jeff and Donna's house last night, and you were following the Google. Oh, is this my turn to stand up now? Oh, geez. <clears throat> so whenever Paul and I travel somewhere, sometimes I I get on the Google Google Maps to make sure I'm going the right way and to avoid traffic, right? So our friends live down in many guys, you know Jeff and Donna. Um, we have friends live in Monument, and him and I go ice fishing a bunch during the wintertime. I know it's crazy ice fishing, but I'll, I'll, leave Castle, I'll leave Castle Rock about 5 in the morning and get down there about 5.30. It's about a half hour. And if you guys know what, I, what traffic is like going south on I-25, it's brutal, right? Especially between Plum Creek and Monument. So we get on the highway, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. It's Friday evening. It's bad. So let's get on Google. So I get on Google, and it's telling us to go down to 105, so over Monument Hill, and then come back. And I'm like, that's not the way you go. What does Google know? You take County Line Road, right where El Paso County starts, right? So I'm like, yeah, forget Google. Let's take County Line Road. Well, guess what? There was a, a roadblock down by the house. And it took us all this crazy way, an extra 10 or 15 minutes. And then Paula said, you got to trust the Google. Well, guess what? Well, how are we going to tie that into God, right? We were talking about less. She ties everything into God, which is awesome. And what she said is, that's like us. We try to go our own way. What happens is we screw it up, right? If we can just learn and trust God, he's better than the Google. So we need to follow God. Do you have another question about relationship stuff, or is that just a funny story? Okay. My point was, a lot of times we're like, we know, we think, like we did last night, that the right direction is taken, um, hi, Tina, taken county line instead of 105. And Google was saying, go 105. We're like, no, that doesn't make sense in our head. Let's go the way we know. But the Google could see something we couldn't see, which was all this construction. And my point is, there are times we have to do what God tells us to do, because he can see where the roadblocks are, and we can't see them. He knows what's inside that person's heart that might be hurt or broken. And if we will listen to him, we will be able to navigate our relationship better because God sees what's in that person's heart. But we want to be like, that doesn't make sense in our natural. I think I should go county line, not 105. And I was like, this is a good example of saying we're going to trust God even when we can't see what's going on because he'll get us from point A to point B way, way better. So that was my tie-in. Does that tie-in for you guys? Okay, good. So the first thing I want to talk about, the first principle is place the highest value on relationships. Um, first God and then others. And, you know, I don't know if you guys get this, but relationships are more important than money. Look, what about that? Is that something you learned, Chris? Relationships are more important than money? Not when I was growing up. What did you learn? Well, let's, let's fast forward to where I learned late relationships were important than money and that kind of stuff. I actually learned, and I've said this before, I've learned a lot about relationships from my wife. If you're married to the queen of relationships, God's the king of relationships, right? She's the queen of relationships, realistically. And then I have Bob and Janet, too. These guys are great communicators. I learned a lot from uh, Bob's class, Celebrate Recovery, on relationships. Um, something we talked about earlier, I didn't grow up with perfect parents. I know most of us didn't, right? And there was no emphasis on relationships growing up. There was a lot of um, anger and dysfunction and a lot of passive-aggressive behavior. There was never any type of, my dad was just terrible to us, and there was never a, an apology, and everything was swept under the rug. So the next day, everything was just fine. 
right? Well, that's how I grew up and that's how I treated my relationships up until I was broken, especially through a divorce, and relationships became way more important to me because I came from a broken relationship. And I would say that really turned when I met Paula and the Holloways, especially Bob, because he's a guy that I can really talk to. Couldn't talk to my own father like I talked to Bob, like a friend. And Bob could counsel me just how God and Jesus would counsel me. And I learned about relationships and how important people were. One of the things I learned before I became a Christian, I got my degree in sales and marketing, in marketing, a business degree in marketing. So I took a lot of sales classes. And a lot of my instructors, um, one of my favorite instructors, Dr. Atkinson, he was awesome. Uh, I talked about him before. I was in, here I was in junior college. I got involved in DECA, and I was scared to stand in front of people. I was scared to go talk to a group of people. And he says, the power of questions is one of the most important things you could have, and that's how you build relationships. He says, don't spend your time doing this, right? And that's where I first heard you have two ears and one mouth. We've all heard this before, right? So listen twice as much as you talk. Well, I think it's actually, should listen a lot more than that. Um, so when I started learning how to ask people questions, it helped me build a relationship with somebody, right? Because they're like, oh, they're interested in me. They, they're at, he's asking about my family, he's asking about my employment, my job, that kind of stuff. And that's how I learned how to, oh wow, and started having a dialogue. The hardest relationship for me to have is where you have a friend, it's, everything's, everything's a monologue, right? They just blah, 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 and never ask me anything about myself or my family. And it's hard to be in that kind of relationship, right? So I really learned about relationships more from Paula and from Bob, and especially when Paula, I think back in probably 2013, she says, you should lead a group at the Rock Church. So I got together with my friend Jimmy Graham. Most of you guys know Jimmy. And we said, let's lead a group, and we... Um, I said, what class should we lead? And she says, the DNA Relationships by Greg and Gary Smalley. And so we, um, it was a men's group, and we put it in the bulletin, and we had 20 guys show up. I mean, 20 guys. And we were blown away. We were in too small of a room. We had to move to a bigger room. And what I saw in that room was a bunch of regular guys that were broken. They were, they were in broken relationship with their children. They were in broken relationships with their spouse or their significant other. And it just blew my mind. I'm like, I wish I would have had something like this when I was going through my stuff, especially when I was going through my divorce. And being in a group like that taught me how to be real and be transparent. Because before it was like, hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Everything's great, you know? Um, and when you can get in a good relationship, especially on one-on-one or, you know, with three people, you can really get real. And Paula has really facilitated that through the marriage classes, through this community here, and so has Bob, too. So I would say for me, I don't know if I've gone off this major bunny trail, is the, is the greatest, what I learned most about relationships is to, I had to force myself, but is to get in those groups and build those relationships in that smaller community. Great, it's great going to church and corporate worship, but the real relationships are built in this type of community, especially when we get done here and we go break bread and we go sit in tables and we're talking to each other. That's, I think that's one of the greatest things. Yeah, I'll take questions. 
Yeah, do it in the mic. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And so, so how how does the small group work? How do you go from being isolated and proud and high-fiving everybody and telling everybody you're fine to sitting down and being real with someone? How does that happen in a small group? How did it happen with you? I don't know if I can answer that question. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, you can get me started. <laughs> I think the way, because Bob and I are really big on small groups. I think that small groups, when you begin to um, feel like you're in a safe environment and you can share who you really are, then the walls come down. You're able to admit what's really going on in your life. I'll get to that in a second. And I don't know if I know the correct answer for that. So Bob asked the second question is, what makes it a safe environment? Um, yeah, being in those, in those smaller groups where, we're, where everything in that room is confidential and you really, like, really feel that you can share something, you, and Bob will say this in Celebrate Recovery, everything that's said in here stays in this room. We're not going to go blab about somebody else's issues to our spouse or our friends. Then you completely blow the trust, right? So trust is everything if you can trust people. And the, the groups that you two and other people in here that have facilitated have really emphasized the importance of trust. And I, I see that as my relationship with God. I, for so many years, I didn't trust him. I didn't trust my own father because it didn't feel like he was safe, right? But the more I was able to trust God, the easier it was for me to trust other people and get real and transparent in those groups. What was the other question you had, Bob? Yeah. I'm going to pass over to Paula. All right. I know she has an answer. So one way that you make um, a group safe is you do, you have some ground rules. You say, listen, we're going to model Jesus in this group, and our job is not to judge or counsel you. Our job is, that's the Holy Spirit's job, right? Our job is to love you where you're at and listen to what's going on with you and say, thank you for sharing. I'm so glad you're here. Our job's not to convict people. It's not, to, it's not to bash denominations or bash bash any marriages or spouses or to change anyone or, or to bash the political system of whatever's going on. That's not our job in, on earth, you guys. Our job is to be Jesus. It's to be Jesus. We are to act and look and reflect Jesus to the world, but especially in our relationships. And like Chris said, both he and I got so much maturity and growth and freedom when we began to grow in a small group because small groups emphasize the relationship between you and God and helps a lot. In my, I'll speak for myself. I always, I grew up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a, pre, like a it's like a Presbyterian. It's called congregational. And it's, it's a lot of high church. It's a lot of liturgy and hymns. And we were singing the doxology last night. We remember, do you guys remember the doxology? Not, not many people. Yeah, exactly. Not many people remember that. But, um, <laughs> but what that, what for me, and I'm not saying for other people, for me, that created a God who was far away and not close. That didn't create a God who's running after me with his goodness. It just created a God who's up there like looking down, not super involved, maybe disapprove of this and disapprove of that, and did you, say your, did you say your prayers? You know, a lot of judgment. A small group introduced me to a God who was close to me, 
to a God who loved me, who's running after me with his goodness. That's what a small group did for me. And, that's, and it emphasized the idea of relationship over religion. We're not about religion. We're about relationship. What I wrote down that's different from here than church groups in Virginia is that people are more important than programs. And so it's, it's you know, like you were saying, it's the, it's the relationship and not, and not the religion. Not the yes. Yeah, we used to always, I would run groups based around a study like Janet does. Like Janet does, whatever your next one is, Emotionally Healthy Woman. Probably, I'll just speak for you. Half, half is about the content, but most of it's about the relationship. Most of it's about praying for each other, loving each other, having that consistent fellowship. So it is about, we do want to have good content. We want to know truth, but we want to love each other, right? So that brings me, the whole program thing brings me to another thing, which I kind of had to struggle with, is relationships are more important than task. Sometimes don't we get so task-oriented that we, maybe kind of sometimes take our relationship for granted anybody here when you said task also trust so when you see somebody in a men's group or things that i've been involved in with bob and chris when there's people that are being real and they throw themselves out there and they tell you know I'm not the only one here with issues, then that trust becomes where you're going to be involved and not just sit back and take up a chair. You're going to donate to the cause. Absolutely. Yeah, trust calls you to be invested, doesn't it? When you feel like you're safe, you can invest in the relationship, right? If you're not safe, you, you, you want distance, right? You're like, i got to protect myself from you because you're not safe. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, um, Remember that story of Mary and Martha in the Bible? The story is, you know, Mary and Martha are good friends of Jesus, real good friends, and he comes to teach, and Mary goes and sits down and listens to him, and Martha's running around trying to get the cooking done and get the dishes done and stuff like that. And for a long time, people would be like, oh, Mary's better than Martha. You want to be a Mary? And I would be so mad because I'm like a Martha. Like, I want to get stuff done, you know? I'm like, you need to be helping me, or let's, like, I'm a task-oriented person. But now I finally have the perspective, but it's not Mary versus Martha. It's about timing. Because let me tell you something. Jesus was a cooker too. Jesus said, all these people are hungry. We got to make them some food. And he provided them food. He cared about their food. It's just the timing. Are you to be, what, what, what's the most important thing? At that time, Mary chose the most important thing. It was a relationship with Jesus. It's not that being a Martha is wrong. It's the timing of it. Um, the, the other one I want to talk about is we have the t- first two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your neighbors, yourself. There's actually a third commandment that Jesus gives. Do you know what it is? Love each other as I have loved you. That's the third commandment, believe it or not. He says this is a new commandment. Not just love your neighbors yourself. Love each other the way I've loved you. That's a whole other way of loving. That's a whole other level. So one thing that Jesus did when he loved us, he loved us out of a place of his will, not of a place of his emotions. So I thought maybe you could, might want to speak to that a little bit, Chris. She puts me on the spot all the time. I promise I wouldn't point you out, Rob. 
You don't have to get up here and introduce yourself, Rob. I'm just teasing you. What was the question? trying to think of an example that um, I have to talk about my own personal experience and it was hard before I really before God really got a hold of me especially in the last 10 years especially after my brokenness in my divorce when God really got a hold of me and relationships came way more important to me um, I really and I still struggle a little bit with this but it's um, we're talking about your emotions and this may be different than how, how, where you're leading me to, but it's part of it is loving somebody that's maybe hard to love, right? Like earlier I talked about, it's hard to be in a relationship who's always monologuing you. They're, they're just talk, 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 and they never ask you how you're doing. I still love those people, and I'm really learning how to love those people because my emotion says, run. I want nothing to do with those people, but I've gotten way better and I'm like, God loves that person. God, give me what you have so I can love this person. Because if I ran off my emotions, I'd be like, yeah, see you later. I'd be like, hey, how you doing? Everything's great. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Is that kind of where you're going? Now, Bob's going to ask me something or ask you something. Would you get the microphone close to your no, So would, would, like, forgiving someone when you don't feel like forgiving them be an example? about that Jesus was obedient without his emotions. I mean, who here thinks that Jesus was like thrilled to go to the cross? Was he like, oh, I can't wait to get the cross. I can't wait to get beat, you know, and have like a thorn on my thing and, you know, 40 lashes and then be nailed to a cross. Well, good times. I mean, I can't imagine that Jesus is like, oh, I'm looking forward to that, right? Jesus agonized over that. He agonized. He said, if this is not your will, take it away from me. He did not want to do it. But because he loved us, he had a sacrificial love, yes. He sacrificed his own emotions to do what God had called him to do. And that's the same way about forgiveness. You know, for a long time I struggled with forgiveness. How do you forgive someone who super wronged you, really wronged you, and has no remorse? And yet I had to grapple and grapple and grapple with what forgiveness really is. What forgiveness is not is forgetting, is rebuilding trust, is rebuilding relationship. Forgiveness is saying, I let go of my hold on you and my hold for vengeance and bitterness, and I let it go. And I turn you over to God, and I say, God, you, you deal with it, but I'm letting go my end of it. I'm getting right with you, Lord. And I had to do that over and over and over out of place of my will, not because I wanted to. Let me tell you straight up. But that's what we're called to do is live from a place of obedience because that's what Jesus did instead of emotions. Jesus' love was sacrificial. He sacrificed. I was thinking of some things. Like it, when you're in a marriage, sometimes you have to sacrifice to love each other, right? You have to say, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be kind. Yeah. I'm going to be long-suffering. Those are things you do out of a place of your will, not because you feel like doing it. Anyone who's been married knows that, right? But with your kids, how have you had to let go of your emotions with your kids, maybe when your kids don't live up to what you want or whatever? What's, how's that been? That's, good. That's actually a good example. Because the way I originally parented was how my dad parented me, which was not good at all. 
And um, with my kids, the way I used to parent my kids was the same way I was parented. And it was more authoritarian, and it wasn't that real relationship. Um, especially with my daughter, who's almost exactly like me. She is high, high, high emotion. And she lets her emotions rule her. And my relationship with her is so important. And actually, Paula helped me with my relationship with her, because her and I used to just battle, because we're very similar. I don't, know, I don't know how that works, but we're very similar. And she says, oh, she's like a little Chris. I went, she is? Gosh, she's horrible sometimes. Um, and this is a while ago. And Amanda, I love you if you're listening to this. I love you, I love you, I love you. But part of it is because she modeled how I was with my ex-wife, right? That's what she grew up seeing. She grew up seeing that. And how I was more domineering and uh, it was more of my way or the highway type of thing. So what I've learned with my kids, especially my, do my daughter, um, is to just love her as much as I can without getting involved in the emotional part of it. Um, because we would just argue, and then she'd get mad and walk, storm off and not talk to me for a week or two. And the more I let her talk and vent, and I listen to her, and I says, I just love you. I just sent her, just, I, I just sent her Snapchat, love you, sweetie. And I, I try not to give judgment like I used to give judgment, disappoint stuff. My kids were athletes. They, they, my daughter played volleyball all the way through high school and college, and my son wrestled, played football and baseball. And in the beginning, I would say the first few years, I was pretty critical as a parent. I was one of those parents like, you could have done better than that. Um, and not really saying you did great. You did your best, right? And that turned around really after, after my divorce. I became more intentional with my kids. And I um, really worked on just loving them where they're at. I said, you just did so good. I'm so proud of you. And that changed my relationship so much with my kids by not being judgmental by just loving where they're at. And when they make a mistake, I just love you so much. I learned that from her. Because she does that to me all the time. I blow it and make mistakes all the time. And she, I mentioned this before when I, when I spoke a couple weeks ago. She's never given me that look, not much of it at least. You know that look, that, that look of disapproval and disappointment? She doesn't give that to me. She doesn't say discouraging things to me. Her, her relationship with me and our relationship with each other is so important. She loves me like Jesus loves me. And she really is one of the first people to model that to me. I had never experienced that before, ever. And then I started getting around all of her friends. I started meeting her friends. I'm like, oh, most of her friends that way too. The Holloways, right? And if you know the Holloways, that's the truth. I think the one thing that um, I picked up from Bob, but, and I'm just going to hit it over and over because I think it's so good. When you're in a relationship where your emotions are starting to take over and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can be Jesus right now. Like, I want to punch you in the throat. You know, I want to I wanna really get physical. That's, I think, when we can do what's our thing, we stop, turn, ask, and respond out of what the Holy Spirit is telling us. That's when we're acting like Jesus. Because you know what? Jesus had emotions. He cried. He was angry. He was distressed. Jesus had emotions, but he didn't make his choices out of his emotions. He didn't, he didn't walk in his emotions. I mean, think of this example, you guys. Mary and Martha were his friends and their brother Lazarus. He loved them. They were like his small group, right? 
he's a couple miles away from where they live, and he gets news, oh, Lazarus is really, really sick. You need to get home. You need to get back there and be with him. And you know what he did? He didn't, he didn't go. He stayed where he was at. And, and people are like, what's going on? He stayed for four days. And then it came to him that Lazarus was dead. And you know what he did? You know what his response was? He cried. Jesus wept. He cried and made his way back to Mary and Martha and where Lazarus was laying in the tomb. And he went up to the tomb, crying maybe, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus stood up and came out. Now here's the deal, you guys. Jesus made a conscious choice to stay where God had told him to stay for four days while he knew Lazarus was going to die because he was following the will of his father over his emotions. His emotions wanted to get there and save Lazarus, but then people would not have seen the resurrection power that was going to be displayed four days later. So this is a precursor to him going to the cross, right? Are you going to obey something that God has told you to do even though it brings you a lot of emotional distress because God's got something else on the other side. That's following the Google, the Holy Spirit Google, right? Instead of saying, you know what? I know how to get there better than you, Holy Spirit Google. I'll do it my way. And the Google is saying, oh, but I can see something you can't see. I need you to do it my way. You'll get there better and faster. I think it's a fantastic, that's a fantastic example of the emotions that Jesus has, but he is not ruled by them. I was going to ask you to talk about earlier this year trusting God with our finances and stuff like that and the emotional, even the emotional struggle that was. Yeah, Paul talks about this all the time. We're both self-employed. Um, I've basically been self-employed, I think, since 97. So anybody who's been self-employed for that long or for any time at all, you know how hard that is, right? So I'm constantly trusting God. Before, I was trusting myself. And you guys remember when the economy crashed? You know, I had a, I had a pretty good-sized mortgage company. Um, had a lot of people working for me. The economy crashed. It was all my fault. I mean, I really, there was no, God, what's going on here? I screwed up. And that's kind of, you know, I didn't realize what was going to happen. Um, fast forward to this year. We're always, I mean, our, our, our income is peaks and valleys. Sometimes we balance each other out. I'm a mortgage broker. I have my own business. She's a real estate agent. She has her own business. And usually we're balancing each other out. If I have a slower month, she's usually pretty good, right? Well, the beginning of the year, this was a, if anybody in the business will tell you this, and we thought it was just maybe something's going on with us. The first three months, January, February, March, we had zero income coming in. Zero. And that's hard. Now, luckily, I have a wife who's a saver. We don't spend a ton of money on stuff. We, we invest, we save, and we, we prepare. But, and I was going through, th through some health issues in the beginning, and, uh, you know, I don't know if it was more you or me leading in this area, but, you know, women, most women, and even guys, one of the number one most important things to them is security, right? When you have no income coming in, how secure do you feel? Yeah, we have savings, but we don't want to dip into our savings. We want to be able to, to have money this month. So I think sometime in January, like, we got no deals, and we got no deals come in February. What are we going to do? And we just, we, were just, we just prayed about it all the time. Um, and I said, 
we're going to trust God on this because I know he's going to bless us. In fact, I think there's going to be a tidal wave of business that come our way. I think it's going to, we're going to make it up plus more. I really believe that. And I felt super at peace for the first time in my life. With three months of no income, I'm like, it's going to happen. God's going to take care of us. And I was, I'll be honest with you, I was more worried about my health stuff going on. That was freaking me out. We trusted God in that area too. But in our finance, we really learned to trust God. And I think our relationship grew during that time, during a crisis. We came together. We didn't separate and get mad at each other. I didn't really isolate. I really think we came together at that time of health problems and no income. That was one of the greatest tests in our marriage. We've only been married, I mean, barely three and a half years now. Um, some of you guys have been married a lot longer. Um, where else are we going with that? All right. I will say this to men and women, but I'm going to say it to men. I think Chris is right. I think that a lot of women have more security issues than men do. Maybe I'm too overgeneralizing. I don't know. But I do believe that with Chris's obedience to saying, I'm going to trust God, that made us partners in our relationship rather than adversaries in our relationship. So I went to him and I said, listen, this is how much money I've got in my bank account. We have business accounts. This is how much in my business account. This is how much is in your business account. Should I go get a job? Like, should I get a job? And Chris is like, no. We're going to trust God in this situation. And he stood up as a leader in trusting God and not living out of fear or emotions, you know, a fearful place and said, I choose to trust God in the situation. And I went, okay, I will too. If you're cool, I'm cool. And we were able to partner together to get through that hard time rather than, you know how money drives people apart, rather than fighting about the lack of money. We were at, I think we went... I think we went up in our relationship because of that trial. That's another example of the Holy Spirit Google, you guys. You don't know what the Holy Spirit Googles. And, and what happened to our tidal wave? We had 10 closings in one month. In the month of July, we had 10 closings. That was the Lord. That was the Lord saying, good job. Good job. You guys really trusted me in this hard situation. And that is a principle of Jesus. We obey, not because we... Our emotions say to we obey because we're deciding to trust God that his way is better than our way. It's just a matter of obedience. I want to talk about, and I'm going to wrap up with this, the third principle here, there's six principles, we're only getting through three, we'll do three some other, other times, is communicate from the heart. You know, the scripture says that, um, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, you brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Out of the heart speaks the mouth. We all know that. How many of you have had people, and Chris, I'll let you talk about this, speak things over you that were not life-giving but actually brought a curse or brought wrong thinking or lies? I'm going to have you talk about that. Oh, boy, it's a tough one. Um, Yeah, I'm not unique to this. This has happened to most of us, right? Um, my original view of God when I was young, I grew up Catholic, going to church. I was confirmed. We do all that kind of stuff. was my dad. And I was scared of God because I was scared of my dad because I don't know how he was going to react, right? And he would say the craziest things. I mean, I, I told this as an example last time. Um, when I accepted Jesus, I was 29 years old. I was, it was actually a, a, 
at a large church in Las Gatos, California. Las Gatos is a very wealthy kind of area. And I drove from San Jose to this Las Gatos Christian church, and it was a, uh, a Billy Graham movie. Remember Billy Graham used to put those movies out? And they were, you know, they weren't five-star movies, but they usually had a really good message. And I did an, it was an altar call, and I went up, and I was all excited. And uh, my buddy who had helped facilitate and lead me to the Lord, my buddy Phil, he's actually the guy who baptized me. He says, you need to tell everybody. You tell everybody about your relationship with Jesus. So I go home, and uh, here I am, 29 years old, and my, my dad was a big drinker, so if he was drinking, he was pretty negative. He, he had nothing positive to say. And uh, this, this, this really freaked me out. I had just become a Christian within 24 hours, and I said, guys, I just accept a relationship with Jesus. I'm born-again Christian. I didn't know what to say. This is all new to me, right? Um, and my dad looked at me with this look of disappointment. He says, your grandmother is rolling over in her grave right now. That was spoken over me. So I am like, is this not a good thing? Having a relationship with Jesus, having a relationship with God, is it not a good thing? And most of those things that were spoken over were spoken over by my ex-wife. She said some things. Uh, remember I talked about how the economy crashed, lost my business, and we were just, I was still doing pretty good. I actually think I was compared to most. But to me, it was a big loss. And I don't remember the conversation exactly, but I remember her looking at me going, God, what a loser. And hearing that from, and things were already on the downhill at that point. And one of the other things that was spoken over to me, this really got me, this was near the end. Um, and I don't dwell on, on my divorce at all anymore. I'm, I feel like I'm, we've, we were, we're in a way different place. We, when we first met, we are both pretty broken, right? Like that song, Broken Together. But I said, listen, I don't want to get a divorce. I don't, I don't want to do this. And she gave me the most disgusting look, like the look my dad would give me. She said, who would want to be with you? I mean, with that attitude. And so all those, those, there was a lot more things spoken over me, but those are the things, I'm bringing them up, I remember, right? When I was 29, I remember a lot more things. I could, I could write a book about all the horrible things that were said, but... I've been able to move past that because I said, God, what are we going to do with that? And Bob helped me through that quite a bit when we did the, was it the Theothostic stuff? I remember when Bob came over, you can talk about that another time. He came to my office and he was counseling me on some stuff. I remember sitting there with my arms crossed. You're not going to make me cry. I'm not going to cry. And we started talking about my relationship with my dad. Well, I lost it. I lost it. Because relationships are so important to me. And I don't know if this is going off topic a little bit, but as my relationship with God gets better, my relationship with people get better. My, my relationship, I care so much more about people. And when I see somebody in a broken situation, whether it be with your kids or with their spouse or with a friend, it, oh, it breaks my heart because I know it breaks God's heart. I know it does. And this is, this is when we were in Keystone, this is a little bit of an example. Um, we were in Keystone, uh, downtown Keystone. We've been there. It's, it's, it's a busy town. And this is on Frisco, Frisco downtown Frisco. And was this, this was on Thursday, right? We were walking downtown Frisco. We just had a late breakfast. And uh, all of a sudden, these ambulances start come, flying down the street. Downtown Frisco. And downtown Frisco is packed. Then we see police cars. Then we see a fire engine. So we walk up a block or two. And we see 
all of these um, police officers and these EMTs and first responders in this kind of a little restaurant outside, kind of like a little bar or something like that. And they're doing CPR on this guy, an older guy. He must have been in his mid to late 70s. And we were watching him. do. They're rotating people, probably six or seven people rotating. We watched them for 20 minutes doing CPR in this guy, right? So about 10 minutes in, we see the, um, the friend of this guy. So I think, I think what happened is there's two guys sitting there probably having lunch, retired guys. I think one guy falls over and probably has a heart attack. His friend was there, and we were, we were this far away. Gets on the phone, you can see he's making a phone call. Within a couple minutes, the guy who's on the ground getting CPR, his wife shows up, right? And you see the police talk to her, console her, and they're still working on this guy. And we're like, I don't know how this guy's gonna make, we started praying. Paul and I just started praying to ourselves. And I just started weeping, and I, I wish she had my sunglasses on. I'm like, I can't let people see. But I was so hurt because I felt like there's a, if this guy goes, that wife has lost her husband and probably her best friend. And that relationship, I felt like that was a broken relationship. And I was just so sad for the friend who was there who had to call 911 to have somebody come try to help save his friend. And I, we don't know what happened. We looked it up. We don't know what happened. But I was so... I think 10 years ago it would have been, oh man, that sucks. But this just hurt me to the core so badly because I felt like it was a broken relationship. Like, this guy's gone. This guy's gone. And I know that Paula was, I looked over her and she had her eyes closed and she was praying. And we were just praying for this guy to get revived. But God has changed me so much over the last few years because I've learned, didn't come naturally, to pursue him. And it made people way more important to me way more important than they ever have been. That's really good. That was one thing I wanted to bring out was if you want to have good relationships with people, start with having a good relationship with God because having a good relationship with God will change all the relationships you have with your people, every single one. So if you want to be successful in life with people, pursue God. That, that is your number one key. I'm going to wrap it up with this if you don't mind. You know, um, we talk about how the, out of the heart speaks the mouth. And the reality is that words have the ability to change and shift the atmosphere. They can bring healing. They can bring condemnation. They can encourage people. They can criticize people. We've all been in those relationships where we felt criticized and shut down and not able to connect or be with people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a story. You can sit down if you want, babe. I'm going to read you a story, and we're going we're gonna to end with this, okay? This shows you the power of words in people's lives. It was in the 1970s that I met a young man with brown wavy hair and green eyes and a mouth that never seemed to smile. His name was Edward, and he stood a little over six feet tall. He presented a mood of, a mood of quiet, shy, and almost pitiful demure. Edward was enrolled in a music theory class that I was teaching at a beautiful California community college located in the small, sleepy town of Moor Park. It was the first day of class as students mill around and they decide which seat to take. It's always interesting to me. Some are confident, more aggressive than others, claiming the front row for themselves. Others, less confident, fill up the middle section in the back row. It was hard not to notice the only six-foot boy, Edward, as he walked into the classroom a few minutes late and positioned himself in the back row. He slumped into his chair and lowered his head with his arms folded across his chest in a defying manner. 
This would be his general entrance into, into the class for the remainder of the semester. As weeks progressed and tests were given, Edward did not do well. He managed to turn in homework, which was marked way below his ability level with my notes. He never participated in the class discussions or offered to answer any questions. To my knowledge, he had no friends at school. Sometimes during lunch, I would see him sitting on the grass under a tree, munching on a sandwich and staring into space. On occasion, I would allow myself to join him on the grass and see if I could start up a conversation. I had this gnawing feeling that I needed to know him better, but at the same time, stay professional and not allow myself to get involved. This is the teacher talking. Edward rarely talked to me or anyone. He would nod his head, or he would nod his head up and down or side to side for yes or no, but he would never speak. Edward missed too many classes, and when he did come, he carried himself like an old man as though he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. The more positive interest I showed in Edward, the better his grades became. The semester was winding down, finals were about to begin, and I worried about Edward's reaction to his final grade. He was the last one to finish his final exam, and as I waited, I said a silent prayer for him. I so much wanted him to get a good grade. In those days, I had a reputation for being a strict but fair grading instructor. I also had the largest enrollment of students in the music department. It was important I live up to my reputation. I planned on following the teacher's handbook. I would make no exceptions. Finally, Edward finished the exam, and he looked completely worn out and defeated. As he approached the exit to my classroom, I wished him good luck and told him I would be giving out the final grades on Tuesday. My thoughts continued to lead me to Edward in the final exam that he struggled with. I had trouble sleeping that weekend. Somehow I knew that the grade that I would give him would be a turning point in this young man's life. Tuesday morning finally came, and I headed to hand out to my classes to hand out my grades. Grades were based on classroom participation, completed assignments, exams, and attendance. Edward would be no exception. Perhaps he needed to learn the biggest lesson of all, to be responsible for his own actions. I felt good about my decision. I sat in my office looking at a long, time, a long line of students waiting to meet me and to receive their final grades, and there was still no Edward. I began to worry. Did something happen at home to delay him? Was there an accident on the way to school? Maybe he was stopped by a policeman. Maybe he was sick. Where was Edward? Shall I wait a little longer? Am I fooling myself? Maybe he's not coming. I felt sick to my stomach. My eyes were filled with tears. What was wrong with me? In front of me lay the papers, the final exam for Edward. I had not decided what kind of grade to give him. It didn't matter. I looked down at the exam with his name printed on it and saw an imaginary D as his final grade. I got up from my chair, gathered my things, and closed the door behind me. As I reached for my keys to lock up my office, I heard footsteps, and I turned to see Edward standing behind me. He apologized for being late and asked would I please give him his final grade. He looked terrible. His eyes were sunk with black, dark circles, and the hollows of his cheeks were drawn. His swollen lips were cracked with dried blood in the creases. His skin was pale and his hair matted. He was wearing the same clothes he had worn for the last few weeks. Would you like some water? No, thank you. He said, sitting trembling. Then he spoke to me. I know that I am getting a low grade on my final. I realize that I haven't been participating in class, and I know that I'm an embarrassment to others. I'm lazy, selfish, stupid, and an ugly, good, no good for anything person. I have no place on this earth, and what's more, no one can ever love a person like me. I am a hopeless case with no future. I could not believe my ears. I wanted to interrupt him to convince him that he was none of those things. Instead, I let him talk. I listened with my heart and not my head. 
I fought back my own tears to manifest my strength and professionalism. When he had finished, I faced him, looked directly into his very sad eyes, and I said, Edward, your final grade is an A. His reaction was one of total and complete surprise. You're giving me an A? Me? Why would you give me an A when I did such a poor job in class on my assignments and on my final exam? Why would you do that? My answer to Edward was this. You may appear to be a D student, but you are an A person. I believe in you now, and I will always believe in you. I am here for you now, and I will always be here for you. Never, ever forget that. Now go and create the life you dream of. Believe in yourself. I will be watching. And by the way, Edward, I love you. In all my years of teaching, I have never graded a student this way. Later that evening, as I prepared to go to sleep, I was like, what have I done? Did I make a terrible mistake? At 3 a.m., the phone rang. In a fog, I tried to sound the alert as I answered it. The voice on the phone asked me if I were Edwards' music theory and piano teacher at Moore Park College. I said, yes, and I waited. He said, I am the priest from Edwards' church, and I have something to tell you. I want to thank you on behalf of Edwards' family and myself for saving his life today. The priest went on to explain to me the events leading up to his phone call. Edward has an older brother who's always been angry and jealous of his six-foot frame and belittled and verbally abused Edward most of his life. I learned that day that Edward came to meet me regarding his final grade. He had left the note on his pillow, and it read, I am sorry that I could not be the kind of son and brother you all wanted me to be. All I ever wanted to be was loved. I'm sorry for being unlovable. I will go now. You will find me in the closet. I am sorry for any inconvenience I have caused you. Please have my body cremated. My small savings is in the top right-hand drawer of the dresser. Edward wrote that note prior to meeting me. His plan was to see me one last time before taking his own life. When I gave him an A, it represented to him that I believed in him and that I loved him and would be there for him. At that very moment, something changed within himself. He had never heard those words before, and it gave him a glimmer of hope. This is all he needed. He left my office feeling positive and uplifted for the first time in his life. He felt so good, he decided to take a long walk in the surrounding hills around the music department and to relive the confirmation he had just heard. He was loved. Yes, someone in his useless life loved him and believed him, and he forgot all about his plan to do away with himself. Meanwhile, his family found the note, went to the closet in Edward's room where they found a rope hanging from the rafters. His closet was carefully prepared as the last thing he would ever see before dying. A large photograph of his brother was mounted on the wall in view where the rope was hanging. Edward re-enrolled in my music theory and piano class the next semester. He worked hard, tutored other students in the class after school three days a week, and this time passed his final exam 100% and got a genuine A+. Today, Edward has a beautiful wife and four sweet children. He's a successful dentist in Southern California and donates his spare time to abuse children, helping them to find love, acceptance, and hope. If you treat an individual as he is, he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, the spirit of prophecy, he will become what he ought to be and could be. Words are some of the most powerful forces available to humanity. Use them wisely 
sow the seeds of encouragement. I find in this story the picture of God the Father talking to us. When the enemy comes to us and says, you're a good for nothing, God says, oh, you're an A+. You're an A+, and I see what you're about to become. Don't give up. Don't listen to the words of the enemy. Be changed by my love. And that is what we are to represent to the world around us. I just want to close with that. I love that picture, you guys. I love that story of the power of our words to change the atmosphere. Let's pray, okay? So, Lord, I thank you for these people. God, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us such a powerful weapon of warfare in this world that we can change the destiny of people by the power of our words. We get to change the atmosphere. We get to represent who you are. Lord, I just thank you, God, for the change and the wholeness that we all are participating in. Lord, I pray that you would make us whole in every area of our life, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, God. I pray for wholeness, God. Let us be a force to reckon with in this world, Lord. I just I just bless you. I thank you for Debbie who's prepared this food. God, I do want to pray for healing over Debbie. Will you come? Where is Debbie? Come on up, Debbie. She's up here, you guys. And then Jane, where's Jane? Do you mind coming up, Jane? Can you come up? Let's pray for these guys. Chris, how are you doing? Are you okay? You want prayer or are you doing okay? Okay. Let's pray for their healing. Debbie, when are you going into surgery? The 20th. The 20th. Okay. So, Lord, I pray for Debbie right now. God, I pray for her surgery. I pray for her pain level, Lord. That you'd absolutely come in and be her supernatural painkiller. That she could um, be relieved of everything that's going on in her back, Lord. That you would give um, knowledge and skill to the surgeons. That this would be the complete and total healing that she needs, Lord. And I just thank you. She's a faithful woman in the house of the Lord. And I just thank you and I bless you for her commitment. God, I thank you that she loves you, that she is a woman of relationships. She is pursuing you. God, I pray that you would bless her, Father. I pray that blessings would overtake her and overcome her, just like the um, slides. The goodness of God is running after her, Lord, and that she would find great favor in your eyes. And I do pray for Jane. I thank you, Lord, that she's been faithful to us as well, to Supper Club God. And I pray that you would um, heal her foot, bring her relief to the pain that's going on with her foot, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would set her destiny before her, Lord, that she would no longer question what she's supposed to do, that she'd be like, I know where I'm going and what I'm doing, and you would lay it out in front of her. You would be her Holy Spirit Google, her Holy Spirit Google that she can trust with her whole heart that you've got the exact right route for her to go, Lord. And I thank you, and I bless you for her, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.